Father, we come before you humble, uh, dependent on you, uh, seeking you, seeking to hear from you and your word. Uh, We need you. We need you every hour of our lives. Uh, We cannot exist without you and without your grace to us and your love for us. And uh, I feel weak right now as I stand here, and I pray that you would strengthen me as your servant um, to deliver your word to your people uh, faithfully. And I pray um, for all of us that our, our hearts would be soft to hear exactly what it is that you have for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2012, Alec Kornacki, a 52-year-old man from Richmond, Virginia, was working under his BMW when the carjack gave way, crushing him in the process. And he was quickly discovered by his college-age daughter, Lauren, who screamed for someone to call 911 before wedging herself under the car and lifting it up off of her dad enough to drag him completely out of harm's way. His heart had stopped beating. Lauren administered CPR, which revived him just as the ambulances arrived. And two days later, Alec was in the ICU with broken ribs, but he was alive and he was able to walk. Now, the seemingly superhuman strength of his daughter had saved his life. And it's likely that you've heard tales like this one where unexpected heroes like Lauren exhibit inordinate strength in life and death circumstances. And when we hear such stories, it's hard not to wonder, how can an ordinary person lift something that weighs over a ton? Medical experts once believed that adrenaline was responsible, and it seems to play at least a partial role. But it's impossible to study emergency response in the lab. So while we have plenty examples of unbelievable strength, we have very little medical evidence about the true nature of where that strength comes from. And we find similar examples of miraculous strength throughout the Bible as it unfolds the history of Israel. But the source of the strength is unmistakably clear. It comes from the spirit of the living God. And in the Old Testament, God's Spirit would temporarily come upon selective people, often leaders, and empower them for a specific task. Often the Spirit would give strength to leaders as they battled God's enemies. A good example of this is Samson in the book of Judges, which describes the era that comes just before the establishment of the monarchy and the anointing of Saul as the first king. In Judges 14.6, the first part of that verse, Samson is confronted by a lion, and then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. We find another example of Samson's spirit-fueled feats in Judges chapter 15. When his own people bind him and deliver him to their enemies, the Philistines, and then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and struck it, a a thousand men. But the power of the Spirit in the people of Israel was not limited to physical strength. The Spirit also gave the very words of God to his prophets that they might proclaim them to God's people. When the prophet Samuel anointed Saul as king in 1 Samuel 10, he made a promise to this new king that sounds very similar to the language in Judges. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And sure enough, when Saul arrived in Gibeah, just a few verses later, the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. This was so out of character that the unlucky prophets wondered if this was indeed the Saul that they knew. Despite these spirit-empowered feats, Saul proved to be an unrepentant rebel, resistant to God and his word. So the Lord promised to take the kingdom from him and give it to another. Unbeknownst to Saul, that other was a young shepherd named David. And as we learned in the very last verse of last week's passage, when the prophet Samuel anointed David to be the future king of Israel, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Don't miss what the verse says. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Even though he would need to wait years to become king, David's life was changed forever on the day of his anointing. And we find something rather remarkable for an Old Testament saint, what appears to be the permanent, ongoing presence of God's Spirit in his life. And this stands in stark contrast to Saul in our passage, 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 23. Saul has a problem. He has multiple problems, really. And what David now has, Saul lacks, and he so desperately needs it. God's Spirit And we begin to see in this passage the contrast between these two men, a contrast that only grows as this story unfolds in the chapters to come. And this contrast helps us to see the theme of this passage, that God's Spirit empowers His people to fulfill His holy purposes. We see what happens to a person when the Spirit is present, and even more so what happens when the Spirit is absent, starting in verse 1. Saul's spiritual problems, actually verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now in this one verse, we see two of Saul's problems. The first is simply the departure of the spirit from Saul. With the anointing of David as Israel's next king in the previous verse, verse 13, comes the accompaniment of the spirit to empower his future service. And as you might expect, the spirit leaves Saul, who has proven himself to be unworthy for the office of the king. Not that Saul was particularly effective in the first place, but the spirit had clearly empowered him to do things that he would not have done otherwise. But that's not all. A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented, literally terrified or terrorized him. And for the remainder of 1 Samuel, we witness the spiritual and psychological decline that plagues Saul. And it's here that we learn the ultimate cause of that decline. Now, Saul has already struggled mightily with fear. On the day that he's introduced as king, the tallest man in Israel is found hiding in the baggage. Fearing the departure of soldiers in the face of the Philistines, he violates God's command and offers a sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel as he was told. But now we see Saul's fear turn to terror. God's use of a harmful spirit here may raise an eyebrow, 
But we actually see this throughout the Old Testament. God will send a harmful or an evil or an even lying spirit to those who have already sinned against him. And he does this to accomplish his perfect, ultimate, good, and holy purposes. These volitional spirits, they're, they're operating under God's sovereignty, but they're op- also operating freely, are the ones who lie, are the ones who bring harm. God cannot do evil. And yet everything that happens in this world falls under the divine providence of God, including Saul's decline. The author of 1 Samuel just makes it expressly clear here that God is involved. And as difficult as it might be, we need to accept that Saul's failure as king and his devastating deterioration was a part of God's plan. Saul was a willful violator of God's word. And that's why this tormenting spirit represents a just consequence from from a just God, the first among many for Saul. And these two verses, verse 13 that we saw last week and verse 14 from this week, establish two very different trajectories that run throughout this study. The spiritless decline of Saul and the spirit-filled rise of the future King David. Now, when Saul's servants see that their Lord is struggling and suffering, they offer him musical advice for a spiritual problem. In verse 15, And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skilled in playing the lyre, and when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. The servants seem to recognize the spiritual nature of Saul's struggle, not only that it's a spirit that is causing his torment, but also that it's a spirit that has been sent by God. But their solution is to find a skilled liar player who will soothe Saul when this, this spirit attacks. Now, most, if not all of us, have enjoyed the benefits of relaxing music. Uh, music from a harp or a lyre is particularly soothing or calming. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine a harp or a lyre producing music that would cause angst. Uh, But while music can and and does provide temporary relief for Saul, this is not the advice that the rebel king really needs. And so we find yet another problem that Saul has, and that's the absence of wise counsel. Saul no longer has guidance from the prophet Samuel, and even when he did, he didn't always follow it. And while Saul has the counsel of his attendants for the time being, he will eventually violate the law completely. And at the end, in chapter 28, he resorts to consulting a witch or a medium at Endor. Here's the advice that Saul really needs. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Repent of your sin. Turn from your evil and rebellious ways. Receive the forgiveness that only God can give and be restored. And certainly, if he had received and heeded that advice, God would have removed the harmful spirit as discipline for his disobedience. But no one says this to Saul. He lacks wise counsel. Where do you turn when you need advice? Who provides counsel to you when you're facing difficult circumstances or even torment? Who tells you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear? 
No matter what the source of our issues may be, we always need wise counsel that's rooted in God's word. We need to steep ourselves in his scriptures, and we need to surround ourselves with people who are willing to confront us when we veer from it. We need courageous friends who will offer godly counsel when we ask and when we don't. We need people who will encourage us toward humility and repentance and a close walk with God. Saul lacks godly counsel, but he likes the recommendation that he receives. And so in verse 17, Saul says to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Well, one of his attendants knows a guy. And what happens next leads to the intersection of the lives of two men who might not have otherwise met. A flailing king suffering in sin and a fledgling shepherd who will not only relieve him but eventually replace him. In verse 18, the table is set for David's spirit-filled service to Saul. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So prior to this point, we know really very little about David. We know that he's the youngest of Jesse's sons. We know that he tends sheep in Bethlehem. We know that he's good-looking. We know that God has selected him to be the next king of Israel in the wake of Saul's failure. And we know that the Spirit has rushed upon him. And Saul's servant that knows him repeats or has heard of him repeats some of these as he describes David. But we also learn some new things too. The most relevant to Saul's pressing need is that he can play the lyre with skill. The lyre is a a handheld stringed instrument that we know dates all the way as far back as the 12th century B.C. But David is more than a musician who will one day write nearly half of the Psalms. He's also described as a man of valor, a man of war. David grew up in an era of constant war with neighboring Philistines. And it's quite possible that he's already demonstrated courage under their constant threat. And we'll see his strength on a war, as a warrior on full display next week in his famous confrontation with Goliath. But for now, it seems at least that he has a reputation. He has a reputation of courage and of strength. This attendant also calls David prudent in speech. When I look back on my younger years, uh, I wish that I, that could have been said of me. I'm ashamed to say that I wasted words, that I used words that I shouldn't have, that I relied on coarse jesting. And when I placed my trust in Christ and the Spirit took up residence in my life, I didn't really know it at the time that he'd done that, but I know now. Uh, my speech was the very first thing that he addressed. In God's word, there is a consistent link between the mouth and the heart. And the way that we speak reveals the condition of our hearts. Children, teens, adults too, what does your speech say of your heart? Both what you say and how you say it. David's own prayer in Psalm 19.14 should be our prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Saul's servant also describes David as a man of good, good presence. Now that may refer to his handsome face or it could refer to his confident demeanor. Uh, we certainly can't change the way we look, but we can rely on God's grace to present ourselves toward others with kindness and gentleness and respect for others. 
But the last description of David is by far the most important. The Lord is with him. We already know this, that the Lord has rushed upon him at his anointing, but the Lord is with him. David lived in another town, but word had spread all the way to King Saul's court that the Lord was with David. And while Saul and his servants are more interested in his musical ability, I I think it's safe to say that the Holy Spirit's presence in David's life is far more important. The Spirit of God empowering David's service will be what helps Saul the most in these verses and what will eventually vex and anger him most, what will make him jealous and even more fearful of David in the chapters to come. But for now, on the recommendation of this man, Saul sends for young David in verse 19. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me, your, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, Saul, son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. Now earlier in 1 Samuel, when Hannah brought her son Samuel, to Shiloh to serve Eli the priest, she sent a gift of a bowl and flour and wine. And then Jesse does something similar as he sends David into Saul's service with a donkey carrying a goat and bread and wine. This appears to be some sort of custom when a child becomes an apprentice of sorts. And young David finds immediate favor with the king, so much so that he becomes his armor bearer. The thick irony here becomes clear in the next chapter when the much older King Saul becomes David's accidental armor bearer as the young, young boy prepares to battle Goliath when Saul himself should be the one doing it. Nevertheless, this is a position of honor for David as armor bearer that would typically involve a close relationship with his master. And it says Saul loved him greatly. David impresses the king so much that Saul requests that his father Jesse allow him to become a permanent member of his court. And he hasn't even played a note yet, as far as we know. Back in chapter 14, verse 52, we learned that Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And he appears to be doing that now with David too. And and let's not forget why why Saul requested David in the first place, to play the liar for him when the harmful spirit attacks, so that he might feel well. Verse 23 explains his effectiveness to this end. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul... David took the lyre and played it with his hand, and so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Now, David would grow to understand how dangerous and detrimental it was to persist in sin and and unrepentance. He would later write in Psalm 32, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But Saul would never learn this lesson. What Saul needed to do the most is repent. But in his unwillingness to do so, he's forced to rely on David's music, which seems to calm his torment. And David serves, at least in these verses here, really in in an ongoing way, as a great example for anyone suffering under the service of a difficult employer or a challenging authority. 
But there's undoubtedly more for us to glean from this passage than following David's example as a model employee. The remarkable description of this young man is that the Lord is with him. And starting with this verse, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel repeatedly use this description of David. Clearly, David was an excellent musician who brought skill to his service, but he brought something better. He brought the presence of Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. And through his spirit-filled service, David shined God's light into the darkest corners of Saul's court. And what we see in David, especially as he stands in contrast to Saul, is the difference that the Spirit makes in a person's life. That's so clear in this passage. And what I'd like for us to do with our remaining time together is think carefully about the Spirit's role in our lives as Christians on the other side of Calvary. How did the prophets prepare for such a change? How did Jesus' teaching prepare for such a change? And how is the manner of the Holy Spirit's work different after Jesus' death and resurrection? Of course, he's the same Spirit, but we see several very different important differences that I'd like for us to consider together today. Old Testament prophets foretold the coming of a royal descendant of David, a king who would be endowed with the Spirit of the Lord. Listen to Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And when Jesus was baptized, the Gospels tell us that the Holy Spirit visibly descended upon him like a dove out of heaven. And when he begins his public ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stands to read from the Isaiah scroll, Isaiah 61, where he declares, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he closes his reading by telling those in attendance that the scripture had been fulfilled in their hearing. He was de declaring, I am that long-promised, eagerly awaited, spirit-endowed, royal descendant of David, just as Isaiah had prophesied long ago. And the Spirit would empower Jesus to fulfill his Father's holy purposes unto his death and unto his resurrection. The author of Hebrews asked the question in chapter 9, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And Paul writes in Romans 8.11, the verse that Mitchell read at the very beginning of our service, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies alive through his spirit who lives in you. And these passages emphasize something else that the prophets had promised. And that is the spirit wouldn't just empower a king from David's line. The day would come when the Lord would pour out his spirit among all his people. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27, he says, the Lord speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit himself then takes Ezekiel in a vision to the valley of dry bones where an army of skeletons comes to life so that he might see the picture of the life-giving power the spirit would have on the people of God. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples in the upper room and he spoke of a coming change in the nature of the spirit's work. John chapter 14, verses 16 to 17, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He says, presently, disciples, he dwells with you, but the day is coming when he will be in you, and he will be in you forever. And after his death and resurrection, before he ascended into heaven, Jesus spoke of the Spirit again to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And just over a week later, the Spirit does come upon them. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice the language. The Spirit was like a rushing wind. And the book of Acts tells us how this spirit-empowered people would fulfill God's holy purposes, how they would worship their newfound Savior Jesus, and how they would carry his gospels to the ends of the earth, a gospel that was attested with the Spirit's miraculous power, real, true, life-giving power, things that would blow our minds if we saw them. Now, under the old covenant, the Spirit would empower a small number of leaders for a specific period of time. David is an exception. And they would accomplish specific tasks. But when he comes at Pentecost and the church of Christ was born, the Spirit began to indwell every follower of Jesus by faith permanently. And he strengthened them with real spiritual power for service in Jesus' name because God's Spirit empowers his people to fulfill his holy purposes. That's what he does. We don't have time to cover all of the Holy Spirit's wonderful, amazing works as the third person of the Trinity. But I want to focus as we close and apply this passage to our lives on three that directly relate to what we find in our passage today. And the first is that the Spirit of the Lord imparts eternal life. The Spirit rushed upon King Saul for a season, and then he departed him. This is how the Spirit operated in Israel's history. But under the new covenant, all of God's people are made alive by the Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Spirit makes dead people alive. The, dear, the, the Spirit makes people who are spiritually blind to be able to see. And He indwells us and He makes us new creations. And His presence is permanent. We cannot lose the Holy Spirit if we truly belong to Him. Now I remember uh, as a young Christian in college singing the song, Create in Me a Clean Heart from Psalm 51. Do you remember that song? It's a psalm of David. And I would sing this lyric with all my heart because I was worried it might come true. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. But I got good news for you. If you're a Christian, he can't take his Holy Spirit away from you. That was David singing under the old covenant. I wish I had known then what I know now, and it's impossible for God to take his Holy Spirit from me. And I know that from his word. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, he says, In Jesus Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God of his glory. See, we all come into this world trapped under the burden of our sin, like a car that will soon crush us to death if no one intervenes. And we cannot lift the burden ourselves. We cannot get out from underneath that car ourselves, but we don't have to. We don't have to because we have someone who lifted it for us, and his name is Jesus. And he offers salvation to all who will believe in him and trust in his name. And if you're here this morning and this good news is new to you, I encourage you to receive it for yourself today. Trust in Christ. Rest in him. Believe in him. Depend on him for salvation. And for those of us who have already followed Jesus, we should take comfort and confidence in the fact that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit God made a deposit, he made a down payment, and he will surely pay the balance when we receive the inheritance that awaits us in glory. You can bank on it. There's a second truth about the Spirit that relates to our passage. And this, that is the Spirit of the Lord grants true freedom. Saul was gripped by fear and control, and instead of resting in the freedom of God's loving kindness and grace and forgiveness, he lived in a prison of unrepentant hard-heartedness. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 to 18, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What kind of freedom does the Spirit grant? Freedom to do whatever we want? Is that what it, this means? Well, no. No. When the Spirit indwells us, He gives us new godly affections and He gives us power to walk in God's ways. And there are some immediate freedoms that we begin to experience when we become a follower of Jesus. Freedom from the penalty of sin. Freedom from death. 
freedom from condemnation. We have the freedom to confess of our sins and to repent of them without fear of punishment or retribution. Other freedoms come more slowly over time as we cooperate with the Spirit. Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom from the idols that are in our lives. Freedom from our fears. But brothers and sisters, the Spirit of the Lord grants true freedom. There's a third work that relates to our passage, and that is that the Spirit of the Lord gives gifts to the church. In the Old Testament passages like ours this morning, the Spirit empowers certain holders of certain offices or or a select group of individuals. But in the age of the church, the Spirit indwells all of God's people. And he gives abilities or gifts to every single follower of Jesus. They're not all the same, but he gives them to everybody. And he forms a priesthood of all believers. And the local church is, is a body. It's like a body with different parts or different members. So if you're a Christian and you're here today and you have not committed yourself to a local church, you're kind of like an arm or a leg or an ear or an eyeball without a body. You, you need the body. And guess what? The body needs you. We need you. And we'd love for you to become a part of, of this family, of our family, if you're here and attending services with us regularly. And if you're a member of this church already and you're not serving in an ongoing way, I want to encourage you to take advantage of the Spirit's gifts to you. He's given you gifts and he's given you gifts to empower you to serve him. There are plenty of needs in our family right now. And if you don't know where to start, start with the greatest needs. Start on our Sunday morning teams. Start in children's ministry. Start in teen ministry. God can always move you to a better fit that aligns with the gifts that he's given you, but the only way to find out is to jump in and serve. A pastor taught me that many years ago, and I would not be standing here today if he had not. The Spirit of the Lord gives gifts to every member of his body, and he gives them so that they might be used for his purposes. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is with us. The Lord is with Cherrydale Baptist Church. And I say that not in pride, not in arrogance, but in deep humility. He's not with us because of anything that we have done, but because of his amazing love. He's with us because of his rich mercy. He's with us because of his profound grace that he's poured out onto us to overflowing. And he's with us because he's chosen to save us from our sin through the work of his son applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's with us by his spirit for his purposes and for his glory. What a privilege. And what power we have available to us. Isn't it wonderful? We can have an intimate relation with the relationship with the one true God. We have the power to resist sin. We have the power to build up the church. We have the power to carry the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. So let's leverage this power, this wonderful, amazing power that God has given to every follower of Jesus and bring glory to God who gives it so freely and so generously. During our our very last song in our service today, we'll have a time to come forward for prayer and a team of people will be eager to intercede for you. And if you would like to place your trust in Jesus today, I invite you to come forward and have someone pray for you. Or if you have sin that you need to confess to someone else, come forward and have someone pray for you.
Or if you just don't know where you might use your gifts to serve the, the living God for his purposes, come forward and ask someone to pray for you that, they might, that he might reveal where that is. But for now, let's, let's pray to God together. God, you are an amazing, amazing, gracious, loving creator and sustainer. And we, we love you. We see your work in this passage and we contemplate your work in our lives now as it's revealed in your word. And all we can say is thank you and help us. I pray for anyone here who's wrestling with the truth of the gospel that your spirit might illuminate your truth even as we sing these remaining songs together and pray together. God, if there's someone here who's wrestling with unrepentant sin, I pray that they would have the ability to come forward and to ask for you uh, to, to receive the forgiveness that you grant in Jesus. And for all of us, I, think we would, I ask that you'd help us to consistently think about where we might use the many gifts you've given us to serve you for your purposes, for your glory, and for your fame. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.